Okay, so you know who never makes any situation any better? Nazis. I hate these guys. Indiana Jones has it right. They ruin everything. And you can imagine that adding them into the mix of the Middle East in the 1930s was only going to make things worse. And it did. I talked last time about the Ha'avara, or transfer, agreement that the Zionist movement brokered with the Nazis in the 1930s to bring in tens of thousands of Jews. But the Jews weren't the only ones to use the Nazis to their advantage. The Arabs did too. Because Hitler coming to power meant two things for the Arabs. It meant a huge increase in Jewish immigration, which made the Arabs very angry, and it meant that for the first time the Arabs had leverage with the British to get what they wanted, an end to said Jewish immigration. Before they pillaged across Europe, Nazi Germany profoundly changed Palestine. Underneath this big picture story of the rise of the Nazis is that by 1936, everyone in Palestine was under immense pressure. So many competing Jewish, Arab, and British imperatives couldn't possibly be met. Something had to give. And something did. The Great Revolt began in 1936, and no one involved would ever be the same again. But before we get to the revolt part, we have to understand the various storylines converging in the mid-1930s, especially the story of the Arabs. Luckily, that's what we do here at Jew I Don't Know. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and here we go again. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The first time I wrote down this episode, it turned into a whole story about the development of Palestine in the 1920s and 30s. The kibbutz, Tel Aviv architecture, Haifa, poets and writers. Really interesting stuff, but I felt like I was distracting everyone from the main story, so I'll have to save that for another time. And then the second time I wrote down this episode, it was so boring that I seized up with writer's block and ran off to road trip around the Pacific Northwest. I'm so dedicated to this podcast that I brought a backpack of Israeli history books with me to keep working, and I was so dedicated to vacationing that I barely did anything. So now this is my third and final try at this episode. I wrote today's episode in Vancouver, Canada, amidst the warm embrace of a weak Canadian dollar, the Celsius scale, and of course the metric system. If it's still really boring, well it's only like 20 minutes, so do me a solid and keep listening because it will set you up for more interesting stuff later on. Now the thing to keep in mind over the next few episodes is that there are three storylines converging on each other here in the 1930s. For the Zionists, things are starting to really not go well. The door to Palestine is steadily closing for Jewish immigration at a time when they need it the most. And for the Arabs, their nationalist movement is on the rise and Muslim leaders settle on violence as the main strategy to oppose the Zionists and the British in Palestine. And for the British, they're trying to figure out how to stabilize the mandate without creating a disaster in Palestine just in time for another European war with Germany. Because hovering over all of these intersecting storylines, as both the instigator and antagonist, is Adolf Hitler. Why yes, I did recently watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Why do you ask? Okay, so the storyline of the early 1930s in Palestine is that actually things are going really well for pretty much everyone. The violent conflicts of the 1920s gave way to a focus on Palestine's growing economic prosperity. 
The British were governing things pretty well. They had put in place a high commissioner who had deep respect for both Arabs and Jews and acted accordingly. Even Ben-Gurion liked him. And that's really saying something because Ben-Gurion didn't really even like anyone. There was a nice feedback loop in place. More Jews coming into Palestine expanded economic opportunities, so the British kept investing in more infrastructure. So the cities grew and the farms produced more, and this attracted Arabs to immigrate too. Thanks to Zionist and British investment over the years, Palestine was the place to be. Jews there were free to be Jews, and Arabs were better off than anywhere else in the Middle East. There was even oil. A pipeline ran from the oil fields of Kirkuk, Iraq, to the port of Haifa, which I find just an incredibly fascinating detail, like Jews and oil. I mean, that would have been so useful. But despite things going well economically, everyone was still a bit disgruntled under the surface. The Jews were traumatized by the Arab massacres of the 1920s, and they thought that the British had given in to Arab violence by curtailing Jewish immigration. Although the British had by now backtracked on their backtracking, they affirmed the Balfour Declaration in supporting a Jewish homeland, and they were allowing open Jewish immigration to Palestine, but the Jews remained wary of further policy changes. And the Arabs, for their part, wanted Jews to stop immigrating to Palestine and to stop buying up land. And they were frustrated by their inability to permanently change Britain's policies. Nothing seemed to work. The Zionists had been honing their diplomatic skills for decades now, and the Arabs couldn't seem to make any headway on that front. Also not working was the kind of chaotic violence initiated in 1921 and 1929. Sure, things worked temporarily. The British always responded to Arab violence by changing their policies to a more anti-Zionist bent, much to the Jews' frustration. But after vigorous Jewish diplomacy, the Jews always seemed to tilt things back in their favor eventually. So the status quo prevailed. Steady economic growth, ever more efficient government, the Jewish community grew, but not in huge numbers, so the Arabs weren't put off too badly. It's a myth that Arab and Jews were always fighting each other. In most places, at most times, Arabs and Jews got along fairly well. But around the same time that Hitler came to power in Germany, the Arabs started organizing riots against the British in Palestine. And rather than spontaneous protests, these were coordinated attacks on both the Yishuv and the British. And in several instances, the British responded in self-defense by shooting into the crowds. This made the Arabs even angrier at the British than they already were, and seemed to prove in their eyes that the British and the Jews were in cahoots. And I'll say this. You can't blame the Arabs for being upset about massive Jewish immigration. Sure, some Arabs simply just hated the Jews. Amin al-Husseini, the top leader of the Muslims in Palestine, was known for his anti-Semitism, and it will only get worse when he teams up with the Nazis later on. But we have to look deeper than that to get at what was going on, and why people decided the things that they decided. A few weeks ago, I was talking to someone about current events, and she said, totally exasperated, why don't people realize that the Arabs are better off in Israel than anywhere else in the Middle East? And yeah, she's not wrong. The Arabs were unequivocally better off than Muslims anywhere else in the Middle East during the 1930s. The Jewish influx meant a growing economy. And as much Jewish immigration as there was, there was also a ton of Arab immigration. They were coming, naturally, in pursuit of the better life that existed in Palestine. By the middle of the decade, you had nearly a million Arabs in Palestine. But rightly or wrongly, everyone in the world gets upset over immigration, back then and now, 
it's 2018, and look at Europe and the United States. We all know that increased immigration brings economic benefits, and it certainly did to Palestine in the 1920s and 30s. Still, the Arabs were looking at becoming the minority in a land in which they had been a majority since Islam arrived 1,500 years ago, and no one handles that well. And it wasn't just that there were Jews everywhere. It was also that they were buying up the best land. Now, they bought it legally, from the Arabs. Every now and again, some local Arab official would issue a ban on selling land to Jews, but plenty of Arab landowners kept at it. The Jews were willing to pay a lot. And also, and this doesn't get talked about that much, but Zionism and contemporary Arab society represented nearly opposite values. Zionism was coming out of Europe and brought with it not only European ideas around socialism, democracy, even urban development and architecture, but also new ideas like gender equality, equal rights for all citizens, religious tolerance. We know that today Israel is the only true democracy in the Middle East and that Arab citizens of Israel have more political, economic, and cultural rights than anywhere else. But still, these European-born Zionists were bringing in cultural and demographic changes that profoundly challenged the way that Muslims had been living for generations. And finally, a Jewish majority in Palestine meant that the dream of an Arab empire in the Middle East could not easily be realized. Fifteen years after World War I had ended, the Arabs remained frustrated. The British were in Egypt and in Palestine, and technically still had oversight over Transjordan. The French were in Lebanon and Syria. Even if they somehow got their empire, a Jewish state in Palestine would split it into two geographically. And despite endless colonial promises towards Arab statehood, the Arabs were just looking at more and more Jewish immigration. And let's not let the Zionist movement off the hook here either. For there was, time and again, a real failure in understanding and in leadership. The Zionists had such a blind spot for the intensity of the Arabs' opposition. Theodore Herzl famously believed that the Arabs would embrace the political and economic benefits brought by the Jewish homeland. Even when it became clear by World War I that that wasn't going to be the case, my birthday buddy, Chaim Weizmann, still clung to the idea that he could strike a deal with moderate Arab leaders outside Palestine. And as for the Arabs inside Palestine, well, the relationship will just be business, not personal. No matter how many Zionist leaders came forward, and many did, to say, this is not going well, Weizmann and others refused to change course. The focus was always on relentlessly building the Jewish homeland. So no wonder the Arabs were frustrated. And no wonder that a key element of the Arab nationalist movement was an anti-Zionist orientation. If Zionism succeeded, the Arabs worried, then the Arab dream couldn't. The overwhelming Arab demand, then, was a complete end to both Jewish immigration and land purchases. Whatever criticisms that we can have about the Zionist tree and its diverse and sometimes mistaken relationship towards the Arabs, we can at least say that it was a non-violent movement. The Zionists were not looking to come into Palestine to forcibly subdue the population like some colonial empire. Jews didn't arrive from Europe to start killing Arabs. Yes, Jabotinsky and others wasted no words in demanding a Jewish iron wall with overwhelming military force in the 1920s, but even he meant it as a measure of self-defense. The Zionist movement and its underground militia, the Haganah, held to the policy of Havgalah, restraint. It was not permissible to initiate attacks on Arabs, or to use violence as a means to achieve political ends. Were there Jews who did such things? 
yes. But it wasn't Zionist policy, and it wasn't organized by the Zionist leadership. For decades now, as I mentioned, the Zionist movement had been honing its diplomatic skills and its connections with powerful governments all over the world, especially the British. And with much success, they got the Balfour Declaration and a League of Nations commitment to develop a Jewish homeland in Palestine. But the Arab national movement was still very young and still in formation, and wasn't able to achieve that kind of success. Appealing their case to the British never worked, still more Jews came in, Protests in the 1920s also didn't work, more Jews came, sporadic outbursts of violence like in 1921 and 1929, they were successful in getting the British to scale back Jewish immigration, but not for very long. Eventually, still more Jews came in. The Arabs needed a different strategy. And they were about to get one. A new Muslim leader emerged, Sheikh Iz al-Din al-Qassam from Syria. He had bounced around the Middle East, involving himself in anti-colonial revolts against the British, Italians, and French, and he ended up in Haifa as the imam of the prominent local mosque. He made a name for himself as a kind of warrior preacher and attracted a huge following. Ben-Gurion would call him the Arab version of Joseph Trumpador, the Zionist hero martyred in 1920. Al-Qassam used Islamic theology and the support of religious leaders to raise an underground militia of young men willing to fight and die in the name of Islam claiming it was a religious obligation of all Muslims to fight against Western imperialism. Up until now, the fight in Palestine wasn't particularly religious, it was political. But Al-Qassam changed it from a fight over national rights to a religious struggle. And if that sounds to you like the tactics of modern Islamic terrorism, that's because Al-Qassam, while not the first with this idea, was the one who took it mainstream. He also left an enduring accusation against the Zionist movement that we still hear today. It's imperialist. Since the colonialist British supported the Jews, he said, the Zionists were also imperialists, and therefore could, and should, be attacked at every opportunity. I talked in episode 27 about how wrong I think this is, but there you have it. Zionism became conflated with imperialism. So Al-Qassam took all these ideas and organized a group called the Black Hand, whose purpose was to kill as many Jews as possible in order to scare the rest into leaving. Starting in the early 1930s, he began attacks against the Jews and the British, building up to what he hoped would be one big violent rebellion that would drive everyone out. He raged against the current Muslim leaders in Palestine, including the Grand Mufti, Amin al-Husseini, who no one would argue was a friend of the Jews. Calling them rabbits, Al-Qassam criticized them for wasting resources on developing Arab society instead of waging war against the imperialists. He also criticized them for trying to work with the British, as Amin al-Husseini was doing. No, he said, we have to go to war against the British too. In 1935, Al-Qassam and his fighters set out from Haifa to start this rebellion, but they didn't last too long. They killed a British policeman and after a huge manhunt were discovered hiding in a cave and surrounded. They fought a desperate last stand, and Al-Qassam was killed. When Ben-Gurion said that Al-Qassam was the Muslim Trumpledore, he didn't mean it as a compliment. He meant it like, oh no, this guy is going to become a national hero and be emulated by an entire generation of angry young people. And that's exactly what happened. 
In his martyrdom, Al-Qassam became the heroic defender of Muslims, and Arab rulers throughout the Middle East jumped on the bandwagon to wrap his Palestine-centric rebellion into the wider Arab national movement. Suddenly, making Palestine free of the British and the Jews was on the agenda of Arabs everywhere. But Al-Qassam wasn't just a hero to the Arabs. He was a hero to a particular set of Arabs, those who lived in Palestine. And while they saw themselves as part of the broader Arab national movement in the Middle East, they also saw themselves as distinct. They started to refer to themselves a little bit less as Arabs or Muslims, and more by another name, as Palestinians. And Al-Qassam became their Palestinian-specific hero. So now they had a movement and a martyr to rally around as a touchstone. And other Palestinian leaders, like Amin al-Husseini, looked at all this at their frustration with diplomacy with the British, at the influx of Jewish immigration from Nazi Germany, at the success of riots against the British and rallying the Palestinians together, and at the success of Al-Qassam's ideology and the way that he became a heroic figure. They looked at all this and they decided on a permanent new strategy to stop Jewish immigration, stop Jewish land purchases, and drive the British out of the mandate. Mass violence. These leaders made the decision to define this early-stage Palestinian national movement as anti-Zionist and anti-British imperialist, and to use mass violence as the means to achieve their goals. I can't wait for all the angry feedback that I'm going to get from this episode. And by the way, Al-Qassam is still considered a hero in some areas. The military wing of Hamas, which carries out terrorist attacks against Israel, is officially called the Al-Qassam Brigades. And the rocket that Hamas fires at Israel is called the Qassam rocket. And now there was just one more ingredient left to throw in. And that brings us full circle back to the Nazis. Nazis. I hate these guys. So back during World War I, the Jews had a lot of leverage with the British. And the Arabs didn't. Since many Jews supported Germany in that war, the British felt they needed to win the backing of Jews in America and Russia could influence those governments towards the Allied cause. And they thought that the way to do that was to support the Zionists in Palestine, most famously by issuing the Balfour Declaration in support of establishing a Jewish homeland. So the British needed the Jews, the Jews knew this, and they were able to extract a lot of promises from the British government. And the Arabs did too, but to a much lesser extent. They were less important to the British in World War I than were the Jews. But now, in the mid-1930s, the Jews lost all their leverage. Britain knew that no matter what happened, no Jew was going to support Nazi Germany. The Jews would have no choice but to align themselves with the Allies. So the British didn't need to give them anything in order to gain Jewish support. And now it was the Arabs who were seemingly on the fence, and everyone was competing for their support. Why? Well, mostly oil, of course. This is the Middle East. But also... A key feature of European fascism was reclaiming what they felt was stolen from them by the Treaty of Versailles in 1920, namely territory and influence. Mussolini's Italy took the lead in spreading propaganda amongst the Arabs, but Germany wasn't shy about it either. The Arab nationalist movement is just like the German National Socialist movement, they said. It's just young people trying to reclaim their rightful heritage and territory. And let's not forget, said the Nazis, that we all have a common enemy in the Jews. It's only natural that we should be friends and work together. You Arabs will have our full support for whatever rebellion you wish to make against the British and the Jews. The propaganda worked. 
And so into this potent stew of local resentment, anger, martyrdom, burgeoning Palestinian identity, Jewish immigration, British imperialism, and a commitment to mass violence, came international support from the rising European military power in Germany. Now, let's not go crazy and say that Palestinian nationalism comes from the Nazis. That's a step way, way, way too far, so please do not misquote me. But Nazi support for the Arab nationalist movement, especially in Palestine, gave the Arabs a ton of leverage to use with the British against the Jews. They got to play this game. Don't make a side with the Nazis, they said. You better start pulling back your support for the Zionists, or we're going to go over to Germany. And as we'll see, in a desperate attempt to keep the lid on Palestine, the British would do just that. But not before all hell broke loose. It was April 1936, and the Nazis' military machine was just starting to make its first forays beyond Germany, setting the stage for the coming European invasion. That same month, a group of Arabs set up a roadblock in the town of Tulkarm in Palestine. Tulkarm today is just a few miles inland from Netanya, it's just inside the West Bank. They encountered two Jews, Zvi Dannenberg and Yisrael Hazen, pulled them out of their vehicles, and executed them. And while Jews and Arabs have been killing each other periodically for almost two decades now, Dannenberg and Hazen were considered more symbolic. They were the first two victims of what we today call Palestinian terrorism. That's because of what witnesses said the Arabs told the two men before shooting them, that they were being killed in order to drive the Jews and the British out of Palestine. The next night, 20 miles away in the Jewish town of Petah Tikva, Two Arab workers who had nothing to do with what happened to Akarm were killed in retaliation. And two days after the murders, the Jews turned Yisrael Hazan's funeral into a mass protest. He was buried in Tel Aviv's Trumpledor Cemetery, the place reserved for many of Israel and Zionism's cultural and spiritual heroes. Ahad Ha'am and other famous writers and political figures are buried there, including, from the last episode, Chaim Erlozorov. The Jewish attendees railed against the British for failing to protect them and set off afterwards in search of Arabs to attack. The Arabs did the same thing, and open warfare broke out. The Great Revolt of 1936 had begun, and it would change everything. Talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.